This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Dublin Podcast is basically Suzanne Kane and PJ Gallagher. It is a podcast that is designed very much look at the negative side of things and tell you that it is okay to get up in the morning and live your day. Suzanne Kane, slightly crazy conservative lady and ultra liberal lunatic headcase me, PJ Gallagher, doing our best to put a smile on your face. It's a midlife, it is literally a midlife crisis podcast. Start from next week, we'll have 10 15 minutes of extra bonus material that will be on the podcast every single week, which will be very focused instead of this usual sort of demented ranting. Excuse me. And you can sign up together on headstuffpodcast.com where you'll find loads of other brilliant podcasts with, with all brilliant bonus topics. Material, and apparently. loads of great bonus material that isn't us, but stick with us too. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and you're very welcome along to another episode of FNI Rap Chat on the Headstuff Podcast Network um, on headstuffpodcast.com, Headstuff Plus for all your head stuff. Um, head, on, head, on, head on over to headstuffpodcast.com. Um, if you want to listen to the show, alternatively, you can listen on Spotify, Google, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, or wherever, wherever you get your cool, awesome audio content when you're going for your walks. Uh, we're re- really, really appreciative of of the sponsorship that we have for the, not only this show but uh, for FNI in general. Massive thank you to Wildcard Distribution, Film Equipment Store, and Octavid.com for their foresight and their help and their encouragement more so than anything else over the last couple of years. So thanks so much for that. Today, we're joined by a documentary filmmaker, a producer, um, a tutor. Am I right in saying tutor? Um, uh, uh, Martina uh, Jurek. Am I saying that correctly? I was concerned about that beforehand. It was like, because Ray, who runs FNI with me, his second name is Mongi. And when I met him first, I called him Manger. <laughs> and it's not Manger, it's Mongi. Um, so, Jurek. Perfect, perfect, that will do. Of Phoenix Films. Um, how are you today? I'm very well, yeah, very well, enjoying the fact that it's May, my yeah. favourite month of the year. Gorgeous, isn't it? Mm. I mean, just the, apart from the whole grand stretch in the evenings thing, it, you know, it's just a joy it at is. the moment, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's the light, the quality of the light. Um, it's it's fantastic, I love it. Yeah, uh, what are you working on at the minute? you busy? I am, What yeah. can you talk about that you're working on? Um, well, I never talk about things that are, I never really talk about things that are in development if they're kind of in development in my head, say, and I'm writing proposals yeah. because I'm quite superstitious about that kind of thing. Okay. I really am. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, but projects that I am working on um, that are in development and are, at, you know, at some point of development, um, I don't mind talking about it at all. I'm, I'm about to make a documentary about Percy French. Oh. Yeah, the singer-songwriter of old, um, who a lot of people might still remember, say, from their parents singing the songs. And certainly he's he's in the Irish songbook, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of, he's fascinated me for some time. Um, he had a really, really interesting life. Okay. I mean, the life that he lived, when he lived, was one of an entertainer, a troubadour, who travelled extensively, you know, in Ireland, yeah. England, Europe and the States, and was massively, massively popular. 
So the kind of <laughs> the kind of thing that we would consider, you know, in terms of social media, um, how you get that kind of information around yeah. would have happened with him, but obviously through the post and, you know, traveling in carriages and going to far flung places, doing shows. Um, and he was also an accomplished artist. Wow. OK. Um, anyway, uh, that's a project that I'm doing and I'm really looking forward to that because there'll be a lot of music in it. There'll be a lot of different people performing his songs and um, and obviously his life story. So, yeah, so that's good. I'm developing a documentary series on Connemara. Um, I did a four part series on the Burren there, which was out last year. So I'm developing another what would be a really big project on Connemara. And I'm just going to so jump in really quickly there and say, is that available on the TG Carrier player? The Burren series yeah, is, yeah. Okay. And it's, we it's, always try and plug, you know, yeah. where the people can watch yes. the stuff as well. It's the four episodes are on the player. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Super stuff. And then I'm doing, a, I'm developing a a one-off documentary uh, with RTE on, all I will say is a very interesting man who set up a company right. that was kind of innovative, strange. Some people weren't in favour of um, in the early 2000s and everything went very badly wrong. Right. Um, and that's a kind of, that's intriguing. This is the FNI story, what it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's a story that intrigues me, not so much for all the things that happened. Right. Of course, that's interesting, but but because of his character. So I'm just really interested in his character and, and finding out more about that. So it's and a profile character piece. It, um, yeah, well, there's a sort of a... There's a mystery to it all. So I'm kind of intrigued by that. So I'm doing that. And then I also run the uh, film department at Pulse College. I just started doing that last year. Um, so I do that in tandem with my own work. So it's it's pretty full. Yeah, it, it seems. <laughs> do, do you want a glass of water, a cup of tea or something? Sit down there. <laughs> I want to lie down for a while. <laughs> now, pop, just, let me just pop you up there. And, and, um, yeah, I mean, uh, how have you found working remotely uh, in terms of your day-to-day -day job over the last year? I found it okay. Yeah. I found it okay. Initially when, um, and it even seems so kind of long ago or vague, I don't even mm. know how to put it, when it all started, you know, last March of last year. Now it feels like 2020 in some ways was kind of a blur, though yeah. I kept doing things like I know everybody did, you know. Mm. We were, we had literally just finished the editing proper of the Burn series. So we were due to do all those things that you do afterwards, you know. Um, the online, the color grade, the sound mix, the generation so recording. So as usual in so, a way. But yeah. none of that had been done. And in fact, oh. um, for the first couple of years, after, or first couple of years, that's what it, that's what <laughs> in, it feels in like. The new, in the new normal. <laughs> <laughs> in the new world. Um, for the first couple of weeks, when it all came down, I thought we wouldn't get the project finished. Oh, okay. Because I thought, how, how the hell are we going to do it? Like, um, So it's my first experience of doing every bit of that work remotely. Yeah. So, for instance, you know, with the with the narration recording, it was being done in Spittle. Um, I would have these four to five hour long Zoom calls with the guy who was doing the narration and their studio engineer. <laughs> We'd run through the whole thing. The exact same thing for the online, for the color grade, you know, the yeah. online editor would send me the color grade. And then myself and himself and the DOP, Paddy Jordan. Um, oh, Paddy's great. He's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. He's, he's brilliant. Um we would then spend another four or five hours. So we did that anyway, you know, for weeks. The series got finished and went out. And that was, that was a real kind of eye opener for me. I mean, it's not that I want to do it that way. Yeah. But I couldn't believe that we actually I managed. Ha I didn't have to leave the house. All of yeah. those things, you know, and I was in Wicklow and they were on the other places they were in. Mm. Um, do you think so, people are going to, are going to, especially like, because, you know, actors, for example, fly mm. all over the world to do press stuff. 
um, directors as well also depending on it or you might have obligations within studios. Do you think that a blended way of working in that way will become part of it or options forevermore? I would certainly hope so mm. for people. Especially um, with families. Yeah, well, everything. I mean, I think there are, there are aspects of the kind of work that we do where doing it remotely is completely fine. It's just maybe that we never thought it was before. Yeah. Right. You just wouldn't want to do it all that way because, you know, there's nothing like I'm sitting in a room with you. I can see your eyes. You can see mine. It's very different still being on a Zoom call with someone, even though there's an immediacy to that as well. But it's not the same. Right. So you want to be meeting people. You want to them to like certainly we say with making documentaries, I guess it's the same for all filmmaking. But mm-hmm. I was talking to someone yesterday who may be involved in a in one of those docs I was talking about. And I've spoken to him a few times before. He's a nice guy. Um, but I said, look, why don't we meet so that we can just kind of sit opposite each other and yeah, have a cup of coffee. Yeah, it's isn't it? Yeah, because then it's kind of different. Because he was saying, what would you, what do you think you want from me in this documentary? Mm. And he's not one of the main characters, but, you know, he's someone that I'd like to be involved. And I just feel like I want to see him so that he can see what he thinks of me. Because people have to trust you so much I in the work I, you do. I totally believe, like, even in, you know, this little show, um, it makes all the difference to sit across from somebody. Yeah. You know, they're, you know, in our genetic makeup and our body language and smells, pheromones, whatever is in that room at that time, all adds to the experience. Yeah. And I've had, as I'm sure you have, dozens and dozens and dozens of Zoom calls. Yeah. We don't know. You have absolutely no idea yeah. what somebody thinks of you. Or you, you get no indication as to what someone, maybe not no indication, but no. certainly less of an indication as to whether or not you get on with them for a start. How do you know if you get on with someone over a Zoom call? I, I think you can make some kind of judgments. All right. But it's I guess it's just it's obviously it's not the same. It never can be. So what you can give of yourself is limited, you know, by virtue of the technology that you're using for sure. But it's not, you know, it's not you're not blind to to the other person for sure. But in terms of kind of overall, I would say for me, you know, kind of a blending of the whole lot of it is the way to go. Yeah. That said, it has been like it has been for almost everybody involved in any kind of artistic discipline. Um, it's been a tough year as well. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it's just been strange. Um, and it was very quiet for a while. Um, but more so for me, we'll say thinking about a couple of projects, as I think I mentioned to you earlier, and getting them up and running and getting out and shooting has felt like kind of quite a different experience. I just can't wait for that to be open again mm. and to just not feel like I have to be worried or concerned on behalf of the other people who we'd be filming yeah. with and that it starts to affect how I'm filming things. And I think everybody who's like even individuals who are not filmmakers that may be listening and they know exactly what that feels like, that uh, sidestepping of people, which like, and even I, look, there is no light switch on and off with this scenario. So when do things, do things ever get back to that way where we touch someone on the arm without thinking, you know, and if that's lost forever, I, like what kind of world is that going to be, you know? Look, I can't imagine that. I, I just can't imagine. I can't imagine both sides of it. I can't imagine the world going back to the way it was only because it feels like it's been so long. Mm-hmm. So I'm not basing it on anything other than that. Um, but I can't imagine going on like this. As, I can't go on like this. As, as a way of <laughs> as a way of being, you know, because yeah. we've, we've adapted and I've adapted to whatever the hell I've had to adapt to. I don't know if I'm comfortable with that, though. You of course know? you're not. I mean, neither am I. I don't want to do it, you mm. know. So 
Oh man, yeah, it's it's a strange, strange scenario. I'm gonna I'm gonna veer left really quickly. Tell me about the experience of making the rehab, which I re- very much enjoyed watching over the last um, couple of weeks. Yeah, it was fairly full on, I must say. Um, so that was a series that we made um, on a three part series made over the course of about a year, mm-hmm. uh, following a number of people who had gone to Cool Mine um, to. Not just to, it wasn't to get help with their addictions because they had to be clean going in, but mm-hmm. to go through a period of treatment that would be lasting, you know, yeah. um, so that when they came out the other end, that hopefully they wouldn't go back to, to using. Um, and most of the people that were there and that we filmed with, I should say, were using a combination of drugs. Yeah. Um, as is kind of more common these days than we say strictly heroin or crack or alcohol. So it tended to be kind of a combo. Yeah. Um, in their previous lives, of course, before they got clean, before they went into cool mine. And then people were in there for maybe five months. Some people that we were filming with were in for a year, maybe more, because at various times they had some challenges going through their treatment. So some they were relapses or they were allowed mm, to stay. No, no, no. not not relapses, because relapses actually you're you have to leave. You're gone. Okay. And you can apply to come back in, but you have to get clean. Yeah. yeah. You know, because they have to have a whole kind of way of making this work at the people who work in cool mine. I mean. I found it to be a fascinating documentary in the sense that your subjects were very articulate, mm. erudite, um, and and I I don't I don't say this in a, in an apathetic way, but mm. in terms of society, how they deal with um, people who suffer from addiction um, or are in homeless scenarios, or they're easy to spot, so they're easy to label, you know. So I found that. Um, uh, your subjects weren't necessarily the whole, the low hanging fruit of of you know people who you, you would traditionally associate with yeah, in that maybe situation. So, um, I, I guess, found them very interesting because of that. Well, they're definitely interesting people, and I'm in touch with quite a number of them still. And we finished that project in 2017, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, How's everybody so, doing? Are they, is uh, everybody okay? A good few of them are okay. And Without naming names, of yeah, course, and yeah. one of them has definitely relapsed fairly significantly, unfortunately. Oh, God. Um, but I would say just in relation to the characters, I met loads of people when I started making the series. The way I did it was that I spent a few months going out to the different residential houses that they have. They have one for men, one for women. And then there's the one in Lord Edward Street, which is kind of more like the day centre, if I can put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spent a few months going around to all these different places, meeting people before I filmed anything, before I brought a camera anywhere with me. Yeah. Um, and it was a way of getting to meet people in a situation where they would, you know, they wouldn't be in any way feeling kind of under scrutiny. Um, and also trying to develop relationships with people who would then become the characters in the yeah. series, because that's how I saw it, that they're like, they're like the dramatic characters that, that guide the series along. Um, so I put a number of kind of challenges in my own way, in our own way, the team. Mm-hmm. Paddy shot that as well for me. Um, and that was, one of them was that, well, obviously I needed the commitment from the people. Um, and it was a concern of the broadcaster and a number of broadcasters, actually, <laughs> who I approached with the project about whether or not people would stay the course. Yeah. What, what um, do we do if they disappear? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um so I wanted to make sure from a strategic point of view that I had enough characters that if that happened, the whole thing wouldn't collapse. Mm-hmm. While at the same time, I had to give them the kind of support that they needed as we were going through it. So shooting it over a long period of time 
that helped that. I would periodically go back out to the places even where we weren't filming just to meet people for, you know, tea or coffee. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that I decided was that there would be no blurred faces in the background. Okay. Because of the fact that... Pray G, uh, GDPR, but it sounds... <laughs> no, 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 no. Once you get permission, you're fine. You're, yeah. um, no, but no blurred faces because it sets up a completely different relationship with the viewer because mm. it suggests to them that there's something dodgy, there's something wrong, you know, there's something hairy going on there. Yeah. Um, and it's just not at all what we wanted for it. So what it meant was that every time I went out, every couple of times that I went out to film in the various places, I would have to go have a conversation with all the men or all the women and say, this is what I'm doing. No blurred faces. So if you don't want to be in, tell me now. Or if when I'm filming, you feel like you're in the background and you want them to happen. So, it, it, you know, please wave at me and I certainly won't put you in. So then anybody who is in who features agreed. Mm. Ah. Um, but it meant, you know, it had to be I had to be really painstaking about that. Um, but the people that I met, both the the people who are the characters in the series who kind of let me into their lives, I thought they were amazing. I thought they were brilliant. The mm -hmm. staff were something else entirely. Um, and we just built up a trust over a period of time. Yeah. Um, and not until we finished the series did I get them to sign release forms. Okay. I was just swinging that. <laughs> I just didn't. I, I decided. Was it a, was it a, like uh, part of the parameters within the initial discussions? No. It's like, you know, you don't have to sign anything no. until you see it or, you know. No, not at all. I just I didn't bring it up at all. Okay. Because I, it's a calculated risk, you know, mm. and it's a calculated decision that you make. And most people wouldn't. And certainly the broadcaster would not have advised that. And had they known, they wouldn't have been too happy. Though if they had asked me and insisted, I, I would have started doing it. But for me, it was much more important to develop the relationship with the people individually. Yeah. And to not put any kind of pressure on them one way or the other. I always said to them, look, if you say something to me and you feel like you shouldn't have, just say it, tell me afterwards, like, I will not use it. I'm yeah. not here to manipulate you in any way. It's not where I'm coming from, you know. Yeah. Um, and similarly, I just wanted to get to the end of the process. I mean, it was on tenderhooks when I was showing it to them because I showed them all individually before the series went out mm -hmm. and then they signed the release forms. But at that stage, we were tight, like, yeah, we were tight. So for, to me, it felt like the most honourable way to do it. Yeah, um, it must have been fairly gratifying to get that result. Um, it was, yeah. And they were very happy with well, the well, series. Well, you built a trust, you know, mm. that's, uh, that's what it's all about, isn't it? I yeah. mean, I've, I've spoken to other documentary filmmakers I've, or they've come and spoke at mm. events that we've done over the last couple of years. And more than once, a couple of directors had mentioned that they were working on something for sometimes abroad, sometimes with funding, sometimes with not, sometimes speculative. And the subject just walks. They're gone. Mm. See, bye bye documentary. Not interested in this anymore. What do you do when that happens? Or it's, has that ever happened to you? Well, a couple of people who I was filming with dropped out. Yeah? Yeah. Um, but I completely... Dropped out of the programme or, or, no, oh, or, not or, at the, or end. the series? No, during the filming. Okay, yeah. Right? Um, two. Mm. One, I had done quite a bit of filming with the other, not so much. Um, but, you know, they were both... They both had their lives to live. And they were already in a very challenging situation. So, I mean, yeah. you, you just say, take care of yourself, Yeah, you know, uh, let them go. Um, I didn't have any right anyway to not. I mean, I knew that there were there were a number of kind of tight ropes that we were walking, making that series. And one was that those people were there for treatment, not to be, you know, faffing about making yeah, a documentary yeah. series sort of review. Like I was very serious about what I was doing, but I knew the main thing was that they'd be able to walk out that door at the end of their treatment mm. and be okay. So I wasn't putting any, uh, 
challenges in the way of that is what I mean. Do you, and, do you believe it was helpful in that in that scenario that you were filming in a way? Because I would imagine that um, in those circumstances, one of the challenges that they have in their lives is having their stories heard or people acknowledging them for the problems that they yeah. have. Do you think that a scenario like that encourages them to maybe open up more or actually helps them within the program itself? I don't, I don't know. Because it's something to look forward to. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's something that I would say is generally the case. I know that I know that there were some people, for instance, who wanted to get involved in the series um, but were concerned about their families mm. and whether or not it would be a good thing for their families or, you know, <clears throat> whether or not they wanted their kids to see them going through treatment. For the people who agreed, they weren't jumping up and down about it now. It wasn't like they kind of loved the idea of being on screen. It wasn't that, you know, but they felt like they were happy to tell their stories and they weren't they weren't ashamed. Like they got to the point where they were already clean. They were past all that. Right. You know, no, of course, things can change. Nothing Mm -hmm. stays static in your life. Like, but uh, (laughs) so things might change and change again for them. But I think I just think the way we did it kind of seemed to work. I don't think we changed the world or anything, but. With the series, one of the things that we wanted to do was just humanize addiction, first mm-hmm. of all, and destigmatize the idea of when people talk about junkies. Mm. What are they talking about and who do they mean? Yeah. You know. What do, yeah, what does the term actually mean? Um I just find it hilarious that somebody who studied law didn't get somebody to sign release forms until afterwards. It's not something, <laughs> look, it's not something that I would do with every project at all, but I felt very strongly with that one yeah. that my trust, their trust and my trust uh, were the overriding things that were most important. And like, say, if I had had, I don't know, Sharon, it doesn't matter who, whoever mm-hmm. had signed a release form, if she had come to me at the end and said, I can't have this go out, there's no way I would have forced it. I'd have, I'd have found a way to I don't know what I'd have done, but I found a way to re-edit. You couldn't. You're playing with people's lives. Like. Yeah. So what was the difference with me getting release forms signed every day? <laughs> if at the end, if, yeah. if someone really felt like my life is just whatever way it is, that this can't happen. From, yeah, from a moral or right? in, well, integrity you know, point of view, you would have said, I'll, I'll take it out. I'll you have, have to. to. Yeah. But you don't always have to, though, do, do, do Oh, like, sorry, do, I would have to. Yeah, but me personally. So, some filmmakers. Have, you no, know, you don't legally have to, but no. I would have to. No, I think that's very important. In, integrity in your work and dignity. Yeah is the most important, right? I mean, otherwise you're just screwing with people. Like. Yeah. It's not, not in a situation like that there. I mean, they're genuinely, they genuinely were like incredibly vulnerable Yeah. at that stage in their lives. No matter how well they were doing in the program or anything, they really were like really vulnerable. Yeah. So it didn't happen, thank God, you know. Uh, let's talk about something else. Hmm. Um, it's wonderful, by the way. How can, can people watch that? Is it I available anywhere? Um, to be honest with you, I don't know. Um, Keep an eye out for it's it, It's amazing, isn't it, how you... You finish projects, you spend so much time on them and it's like, it's, Yeah, yeah, but, you know, the infrequency of stuff with online players and stuff now as mm. well. Look, it's great that, like, we have two options now with the RT player and that and there's other ways now. Um, TG Carrot player, yeah. TG Carrot player is amazing. Um, and then, you know, going from something so heavy hitting as that to something as, you know, rural and very, I suppose, sim- similar in a way in terms of communities in the Burren. Um and exploring people's lives in that capacity and kind of unearthing a mm. um a very um a very normalized and similar environment to what we have here but also very char- characteristically different what was that like and what spurred that why did you want to do that um 
It was great. I loved it. I think I loved every second of making that series. Um, Why did you come home? You should have stayed there. <laughs> kind of thing. Listen, I've asked myself that question quite a few times. Um, so I, I'm from Limerick City and my father was from Clare. Uh, so we spent a lot of time when we were kids <coughs> in Clare. All, you know, all our summers for a number of summers. And then uh, quite apart. So I love the place. I love it deeply. Um, quite apart from that, then many years later, I made a series for Teach a Car called Winton Amara, People of the Sea that involved travelling the coast of Ireland. And we did it over six years, one county in each series um, with a fisherman and a boat builder, Paltrick O'Donine. Uh, so one of the series was in Clare, six programmes set in Clare. We would generally shoot them over a summer. Um, Paddy also shot them, Paddy Jordan. Um, so I've kind of always had it in my head to do something on the burn. And I never felt to that point that it had really been explored in any kind of meaningful way mm. in documentary. So I proposed it. This is literally how it went. I proposed it to a commissioning editor, T.G. Carr. I was having a meeting with her about something. Uh, said I'd really like to do it. She liked the kind of sound of that and said, OK, try and develop something for the next BAI round. So I did. And I proposed a four between the jigs and the reels and the proposals going back and forth between me and the broadcaster. It turned into four one hour programs. Um, so then BAI got involved and then Section 481 funding came into play. Well, it didn't. I mean, I had to. <laughs> My God, what fun <laughs> it is applying for Section 481. But anyway, Jesus that's Christ. a whole other story. Um, yeah. And and we shot there um, up and down every month for a number of days at a time. I did a lot of research, of course, to identify again the characters who would kind of animate the series. And um, we spent a lot of time with them. And it was a great experience. And it was a completely different experience having come off um, Cool Mine. Yeah. You know. Um, it was just amazing to have the the pleasure and the joy of being in the Burren for four seasons, over four seasons, actually, in a shot into the following year as well. Um, and not just that, but th to spend time with the people. Yes, of course. Yeah. You know, did you find it reconnected you with nature in in any way? That, oh, yeah, that, I mean, that subsequently you'd, you'd has have become to be, part of your life afterwards. You'd have to be fairly kind of divorced from it not to feel the connection if you spend that much time in the burn yeah. you know I mean it's either going to be a place that you get and you embrace or you'd really like to run out of it to get back to the closest city yeah you know because all of those cliched terms are used about the the burn bleak and barren and you know imposing and uh, I don't find it like that at all I find it majestic of course and in fact the colours in the burn change from season to season even in the wintertime it's incredibly beautiful yeah but you have to feel it. Like, if you don't feel it, there's no point in someone telling you. You know what I mean? I was perfectly fine for people not to ever want to go to the burn. <clears throat> they don't need to. Yeah. Um, but I found it, and still do, you know, it's quite extraordinary as a mm. place. But it's the it's the place and the people, the two go hand in hand, you know. It's cathartic even, mm. in terms of, you know, the connection perhaps with your childhood yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was great. I mean, it was, it always feels like coming home whenever I go to Clare, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm. Um, I might ask you just from a, a production and a directing point of view, just maybe one or two quick questions before they let you go. Um, just about um, funding and production and common mistakes maybe people might make. Have you any advice for maybe yourself, theoretically, um, when you were starting out pitching, writing proposals, mm. that type of thing as well? Um, um, you know, what what would you say to yourself Hypothetically, I think uh, 
I think fundamentally it comes back to the strength of your proposal. Mm-hmm. I mean, the strength of your idea, then how that's expressed in your proposal <laughs> and how clearly and well written your proposal is. That's what's going to grab people yeah. initially. I mean, it literally is. And as you well know, um, you know, there are broadcasters um, and a number of them, commissioning editors, I mean, within the various broadcasters who will literally say to you, if you're not putting me in the first two sentences, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? For that reason, I'm not investing. <laughs> yeah, I'm not investing. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and sometimes when I hear that, I just like, oh, my God, you know, not again. I'm so sick of hearing these kind of things that are like cliches. Yeah. <clears throat> but in some ways and for some projects, they're true. Mm-hmm. And certainly if you can't, if you can't sit in front of a commissioning editor and tell them what your project is about, clearly you're on a hiding to nothing mm-hmm. and you probably should be. That's not to say that there isn't room for things to change completely when you actually go to make a project. Mm-hmm. But you should you should know fundamentally what your idea is and how you want to how you want to create it, how you want to express it and how you're, you know, who you're going to populate it with, those kind of things. So funding, like funding for documentary, there are lots of different avenues, but of course they're competitive, right? Mm -hmm. They're competitive and, you know, that's understandable. Uh, You can put together, you know, a funding package for a one-off or a series. You should, once you have a certain level of experience, you should be able to do that relatively easy, Mm -hmm. easily. but the thing is, what's your project about? Yeah, I mean, is it, surely, is it really interesting? Yeah, if you, 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 you're deluded to think that you can lay the track in front of the train as you go. Yeah, exactly, you, you exactly. Know. Very well put. And I think a lot, of, a lot of, and, and I know this, and from personal experience, you need to do, you may think you know what it is, but you need, you, you need to express in a different way what it is to other people. I think it, I don't, I'm not sure that that's what it is. Um. How will I put it? I think when you're writing a proposal, if you know what your idea is and kind of, you know what your central idea is, but obviously you're trying to work out what the story might be. Mm -hmm. And you have to do that to some extent when you're writing a proposal. And that proposal is going to be, you know, the fundamental document that's going to get you in front of a commissioning editor or whatever the funding body is. Um, So you know that that's your document. You know you have the responsibility to write that as as clearly and as potently as, as you can. So really, when you write a proposal, I mean, my advice to anyone and myself is, you know, I go away from it, try and go away from it for a few days. This doesn't always happen, of course, because deadlines, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, we all seem to end up working to deadlines. But if you can, you go away from it for a few days, you come back to it. You try to come back to it with a different eye. You don't come back to it sort of with your own eye, if I can put it this way. Mm -hmm. Try and come back to it and interrogate it and say, is that well written enough? Is that clear enough? Am I getting to the end of this page and not really quite sure what all that is about? (laughs) You know, am I faffing about in this? And if you are, then you have to, you have to really kind of learn to be ruthless with yourself in your writing, mm-hmm. or at least try to be. It doesn't mean that you're at all saying this isn't working, this is wrong, this is bad. It's that you're saying I want to reach a place of clarity, mm-hmm. so that anyone, any Olegis coming to read this proposal is going to be able to go, wow, also, that sounds really interesting. Whether like, they're a commissioning editor or, yeah, you know. Joe Soap down the road kind like, of thing. Ultimately, you would imagine that it's knowing it and exploring all of the avenues within the proposal in that you know it so well that 
you've explored it at least momentarily different things that may come up even in the in the interview process sure to some extent yeah I mean you want to leave a little bit of mystery and you want to leave a sense that there's an uncovering to be done and you want to mm-hmm. give them uh, you know the opportunity to imagine that there's exploration going to happen in this film and that you don't know everything um, you want to give them enough clues though in yeah. the proposal <laughs> that they feel like I can fe- I can see how a film hangs off these you know the skeleton you've given me a skeleton I can see how things will be added to this skeleton to make this film work. Yeah. Um, and I guess you require a certain level of confidence in the way you express that in the proposal. Mm-hmm. But I would always say, on top of that, that clear language is the way to go. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we write proposals in different ways for different projects as well. Yeah. I don't have one way that I write them and I get as many rejections as anybody else, of course. So, you know, sometimes you're like, hmm, I thought that was... You know, I thought that was really good. Um, But but so Mm -hmm. you have to also remember, I suppose, and this is just to kind of give um, some sort of sucker to people who are too used to getting rejection is that sometimes that's my next question. But sometimes, (laughs) you know, remember, like. It's not that your project isn't really good necessarily, it's that you're up against possibly five, six, ten other also really good projects who come with their own. They come with their own inbuilt loveliness as well, right? And of they course. become attractive. And sometimes, because I know I have been on the other side of it, where I've been deciding on funding, um, sometimes you're going, well, we've only, you know, we've only got three. So you, sometimes you're f- trying to find reasons to say, well, this won't go ahead. It's then. a percentage game, isn't it really? Yeah. I mean, you know, from a tutor I had previously, it was discussing proposals in general terms in filmmaking. It's, you know, it's their job to reject your proposal. That's the first thing they look for. You know, they don't look for the, like, all the stories are great stories. All of them has have potential. Mm-hmm. All, all mm-hmm. of them have nice names attached. Mm-hmm. It's like, a, it's a, may, a yes, a no, or a maybe point straight away based on the percentages of what you've put yeah. in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, but then there's room for magic. And that's that's the other thing to remember. And that's, uh, I guess that's something you can't, you know. Legislate for it. No. no, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. One question before I let you go. How do you deal with rejection? Because we all get it in, on different levels. Um, well, kind of depends on what the project is. Mm-hmm. To be honest, it depends on the project. It depends on how much work I've put into it. And it really depends on how much I love it. Yeah. You know, because there are, I mean, the law of attrition in filmmaking, it, it's it's the rate of attrition rather in filmmaking is so high mm-hmm. that, you know, it would be a foolish person who develops one project and thinks like this is so good, it's going to get funded. And then I'll think of something else next year. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm always aware of sort of somewhere in my head they're casting about for new ideas but I only ever go with something that fascinates me so you know so that's a given that's the group um, yeah and then if if it's rejected sometimes I just kind of go okay hmm be quite philosophical about it other days not quite so There's you know some plates take yeah it, take well you know you can just be so pissed off because you've you just know you just know this thing is really good mm-hmm. you know um and there have been projects that I've let go because really it has only been one avenue, yeah. one possible avenue for funding. And if that's gone, it's like I say to myself, just don't keep carrying that around in your head anymore. Mm-hmm. You've got to just let that one go. Others, what I do is I just put them away and then I come back to them. It, and I have done that with a number of projects and gotten funding mm. like two years later, one year it's later. It's the wisdom and the choices, isn't it? Yeah. But for the... Because sometimes yeah. it's just, it's timing. Yeah. Sometimes it literally is timing. It's not that the project isn't great. Mm-hmm. And I've had projects funded in that way that 
one year, as I say, or two years later. So it's, you know, it's worth coming back to them. Yeah, yeah. You, had, you just have to be, you have to make your own decisions about which ones those are. <laughs> yeah. uh, I suppose having good uh, collaborators is a, is, yeah. a, is a way to identify that, isn't it? And, yeah. and having the courage of your own convictions as well. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, not kind of hitting yourself over the head with it constantly. If something is just, mm. if it's not getting there, you have to be wise enough to maybe sometimes let it go, you know. And also, I suppose... I don't know if you agree with this. Maybe there's an element of fate, maybe in it, uh, in insofar as if it's for you, it won't pass you. It'll come back. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm never completely sure about that. Part of me wants to think that that's the case. Another part think, hmm, I'm not so sure. Um, <laughs> fate won't magically make the yeah. budget appear in your in your bank no, account. No, no, <laughs> unfortunately not. It doesn't do that. It doesn't do that. But I guess you know. Listen, uh, to make to make documentaries in the first place, you do need to have faith, some kind of faith. Um, because it's it's kind of demanding, you know. It's mm. demanding of you. Um, it's it's demanding of you in every way. It's demanding of you in terms of the ideas that you develop, the people that you develop relationships with, and you want to get stories told, and mm. you feel that they're important, or maybe something just whimsically kind of interests you, you know. But generally speaking, it's a mixture of all those things. So you have to um, you have to just believe. Believe, believe it's worth it. Like. Yeah, it has believe to be worth, worth it. it. Yeah. Um, we could talk for for hours. I, I I get the impression, but unfortunately, that's not the case today. Thank you so much for your time, um, guys. Um, if you like this podcast, if you like our other podcasts, um, please have a listen um, and have a look through our, our back catalogue. Um, and if you'd like to support Film Network Ireland and the work that we do, um, please head on over to www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash FNI. Um, equally, if you'd like to know more about Martina's work in Phoenix Films, please go to phoenixfilmsireland.com um, and yeah, and if you'd like to, I'm, I'm sure, engage with uh, Martina on any of her projects or previous work, um, drop her a mail. I'm sure she'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. And good luck, welcome. And, and good luck with uh, your future endeavours. <laughs> Thank you. Thank Thanks. you. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.